We're in an all-female, India's first all-female improv company. And what, yes. what, what's the name of that? The Adamant Eves. So the we Adamant the- Eves. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Improv Interviews with Margot Escott, a psychotherapist in Naples, Florida, who is using her 35 years of experience to develop improvisation programs benefiting and improving the lives of those with emotional and physical challenges. Improv Interviews brings together the world's leading improvisational theatre masters, founders and innovators who are using improvisation therapeutically in unique and surprising ways. With great guests that include legends like Ed Asner and Aretha Sills, you're sure to learn something new about improvisation. This is Improv Interviews with your host, Margot Escott. Well, today I have a wonderful guest all the way from Bangalore, India, and her name is Laxmi. Welcome, Laxmi. Thank you for having me, Margot. I'm so excited and glad to be here. Oh, I'm glad you're here too. And you've got an incredible bio and resume, and we're going to talk (laughs) about that. But maybe we should give a shout out to our mutual friend, Siddharth, because you know him in Bangalore, right? Most definitely. I had the absolute privilege of um, being one of the first trainers uh, who could take improv to him. Uh, so we, he was there in one of the 101s that I had conducted. But then, of course, since then, he has done so much work. He has like built his improv um toolbox and I learned so much from him and he's such a he's such a committed community builder it's big shout out to him he's keeping the community together in many ways at this point I love him I just love him so we were chatting before the podcast about the fact that you come from a, a fairly privileged background can you explain that a little bit and talk a little bit about how you grew up and how that was different from because you live in a very populous uh, country um, I don't know how many people are living there right now, but I'm sure you don't know them all. So let's talk a little bit about what privilege means to you. Sure. Um, I suppose uh, it's always um, comparative and intersectional. So that's uh, I um, come from a, come from a family which has never had trouble providing for food and the basic necessity. And on top of that, I my father was in defense, which meant that uh, our a lot of things like education and medical bills, etc., were were at a at a at a price which was very affordable because those are perks of being in the defense. Um, and by indi- individually speaking, I am somebody who is university educated who has a job even during the pandemic, which pays me enough for me to do improv, you know, so I don't have to depend on uh, an unorganized sector like the arts just yet to um, provide for me. Uh, and most importantly, I am uh, I'm cisgendered and I am uh, heterosexual. So this means there is a certain level of state um legitimacy that I enjoy, which a lot of people in my country don't. And most importantly, I am uh, I am born into a family which is upper caste and belongs to and um, practices the religion, which is a major majoritarian religion in this country. And at this point in time, 
that is pretty much a matter of life and death because it, we are <laughs> fastly moving into a space where other minorities are often um, based on religion or caste or um, other such demographics are often um, in a very, very difficult position. So, yeah, so that's me placing myself on the... Um, of course, these are only some of my uh, some of my um, identity locations. There are so many more, but yeah, these are the ones which definitely make me in this time and space in India extremely um, safe compared to others. Yeah. Thank you for that. And you mentioned religion. Do you talk about religion, or you? I, I don't know what the religion is. You don't have to tell me, but I was just kind oh, of no, curious. That, that's all right. So I was born into a family which practices Hinduism, which still does, like my parents and my grandparents still do. Um, I don't. I I'm um, I just, religion just doesn't have that sort of, it's not an axis for me on which my life is based. Um, I used to quite mindlessly practice the things like when I was young, when they would just be like, oh, okay, hold this bell and ring it while we do this. And I would be like, ah, this is fun. So it was from a very mindless space <laughs> to do what I used to do. But now, um, since I have known how many codes of inequalities are written into um, the practices as they have become now, and even back when they were codified, I, I very, very strongly keep my distance from it. Well, I like to say that there's a big difference between organized religion or philosophies and spirituality. So I think many yeah. of us practice what I consider spirituality. And, and we all have our different definitions, but you're kind of nodding your head as well. And um, yeah. it's interesting, the word spiritus comes from the word respiration. It comes from breath, actually. There's a big connection between our spirituality and the breath, which is so important yeah. in so many ways. So um, yeah. you you had a, yeah, a breath as the unit of life in that sense. It is. Um, so when you were a young child and in high school, um, were you interested in theater at all? What was your passion back then? Mm, I was a little, <laughs> I was, and I say this with, with no qualms. I was a very lost and distracted child. I never was around anything for long enough for it to be something, <laughs> uh, something that I devoted enough time to in the sense that I was, uh, <laughs> Uh, I would I would like something and I would stay with it for like a couple of minutes, a couple of days or months, and then I would shift. I would I was a child which was very um who was very easily carried through the flow. Like if my friend did something, I would do that with them. And if uh I was also quite a lo lost and lonely child, especially before my ninth grade. I used to roam around alone. The only people that I used to be with was my mother. So I used to spend quite a bit of time by myself and on my cycle. So I didn't have, so theater did not really, also in our school, we did not have theater classes. So there was no way for me to have an access to theater as a subject and as a hobby. Uh, but what I did enjoy doing was dancing, that I, I danced quite a bit, not in school, but at home and for functions and cultural programs, etc. So I really enjoyed, I, and I, I, was, I was also always in a way, uh, I used a lot of, gestures when I spoke and I was easy with my body. So all of that, yeah. 
So sometimes I consider myself a dilettante because I was interested in so many different things. Like at one point I lived in New York City. I was studying dance. I was studying art. I was drinking a lot. Um, so. Yeah. Drinks <laughs> many bears. <laughs> so, you know, you got a degree in interdisciplinary humanitarian. Is that correct? Humanities. Yeah. Humanities. I, yeah. I majored in English, but I also studied philosophy and sociology. I majored in English. Did you do a ah. lot of did you do a lot of reading in English when when that was your major? Yeah, so um, my undergraduate studies were in English psychology and theater. And, uh, and because it was an undergraduate course, a lot of this studying was canonical, like Victorian uh, texts and, in, uh, you know, American English texts and whole the whole uh, the whole stack of books you need to read. Uh, even, even within feminist literature, reading the ca canons, right, like Boar or Butler or whatever. Um, in my post-graduation studies, however, it was a lot more... Um, intentional the learning was a lot more intentional and the and the professors were a lot more intentional a lot of what we studied was um not the canon we were reading the contemporary writers or even if we were reading the reading the canon we were asking not questions about oh how were they great but also how they messed up and how they were writing even if their writing was beautiful it was steeped in steeped in racism or colonialism or or the problems of those times which when we look back now are very evident to not unsee those things um we're also doing courses within just the just a pattern of thinking what it means to write what it means to read something what it means to have an opinion about something so it was a lot more deliberate process it was a lot more political process in that sense so yeah so which is why i really enjoyed my postgrad but I also liked my undergrad because without that base, I would have never been able to enjoy the postgrad education I got. Absolutely. So um, psychology, that was in your undergrad, the psychology. Yes. And did that change your route or journey at all when you studied psychology? Mm, that's such an interesting question, Margot, because... Um, uh, because I did triple major, which meant I, it was one of the three subjects that I, that we had classes in. Uh, I enjoyed studying it. I wouldn't lie. Um, but there were a couple of things that put me off. Uh, one was definitely the Eurocentric teachings we were given. Like all our textbooks were written by Americans or people from Europe. And there were really weird things like one of the table in our in our first textbook, 101, Psychology 101 textbook, had a table which said um, global intolerance to lactose or something. And when they had Asians against it said 100%. And I'm like, I know some people who are not lactose intolerant. <laughs> I can't believe anything is 100%. I think his name, I think the book was by Robert somebody. I was like, please, Robert, somebody, I'm sure there's one person in Asia or whatever significant percentage who are not lactose intolerant. So, um, and then the, because in psychology, the tests are so important, right? And there are some tests uh, that we used to do in the psychology lab, which were, um, 
which were adjusted to the Indian cultural um, reality. However, they always just adjusted. You know, they were not for that culture. So, um, and the second trouble I had putting myself in, frankly, was with positive psychology, which was one of the last subjects we studied. And it was such a, it was so much, it was so much crap, frankly. It was just, it was really, it was like a, it is like a bad version of pop psychology, you know. But what I did enjoy studying was the modules in abnormal psychology, and psychotherapy and a little bit of playback theater that I was doing, which had some roots, which has some roots in psychodrama. So these were my interesting, even though I was doing psychology proper in classes, it was outside textbooks and class that I really enjoyed more entry points into psychology. Got it. And I agree with you about positive psychology. Although there were many people and I used to belong to the American Association of Therapeutic Humor. And wow. there were many, and some of the one of the psychologists from there was like one of the forerunners of positive psychology. Um, it's an interesting concept, but if we were happy all the time, we would be yeah. sitting locked up somewhere, I think. Yeah. <laughs> also, I feel like it might have been, I'm very aware also that it might have been the modality in which it was taught to us. It might, it felt very consumerist in nature and it's very sounded like, it sounded like it was a byproduct of post-capitalistic world we live in where, hey, just do your work, just buy some burgers and drink your Coke and do your exercises. You would be a happy and productive human being. You know? Great. There was a, there was a popular, I'm sorry, there was a popular book called The Secret that was out for a while. And it was about, you can do anything you want. Well, I'm sorry, but if you're, you know, 14 and working to support your entire family and have no access to anything, you, you can't really fulfill that promise. And so it's exactly. for the privileged people. Um, so you were, were you introduced to playback theater while you were in undergrad or graduate school? When did you get introduced to playback? Yeah, I was in undergrad school and it was part of, because theater was one of my um, subjects. This was one of the compulsory classes that I had. And um, it was, it is, it is the best thing that has happened to me in that sense because it's been my longest interest. I, as I was telling you, Margot, I I pick up things and then I enjoy them and then I forget that I was doing them. <laughs> so I kept finding my way back to playback theater. Playback theater became this sort of space where I made a lot of friends, stuck with a lot of friends, grew up into grew into friendships, grew out of friendships, lost some friendships. So it became a whole whole little um whole little shell within which the which life happened um yeah and it was very wonderful as a theater form because if if the way i did playback there was no way if the people you did it with regularly wouldn't become your friends and your lifelong friends really so even now the people the folks that i uh, co-founded my playback theater company with our people I learned playback with, you know, like in 2011, 10 years ago. So it's, it just stays that important and close. So um, at some point I want to go back to what we were talking about culturally because of the vestiges of colonialism that still exist. Um, but I'm going to jump into, well, let's talk about it now because recently <laughs> there was a, uh, a TV interview with Oprah 
and um, uh, Prince uh, William and and Meghan. Yeah. And uh, it was so obvious that the racism that was still involved in the institution or as they called it, the firm. And do you see vestiges of colonialism um, yourself in India? Yeah, I mean, um, the legal system, the institutions, uh, all of them um, have adopted and adapted from the colonial system in many ways. Um, The partition that took place of um, India and Pakistan, uh, though not only a colonial project, but happened in tandem as the colonizers left, so to speak. Um, And of course, I am not an expert in any of this, but spaces that I definitely see um, vestiges of colonial projects are one in language that we use, like English is a marker of success in India. One needs to know, know, in some ways, to have a certain kind of life, uh, one needs to know some amount of English. And even in the college that I went to, so I, I was, I mean, this is a, my mine is not what I'm going to share is not even a problem. I'm just using it as a marker to tell you, even if you grew up knowing English from quite a privileged place, like I never had to had had to be insulted for not knowing English. But even so, when I joined my undergrad program, I was very aware of the fact that I came from a government school. You know, I didn't come. I came from a public school and not a private school. And there were stark differences in the way I spoke the language, which was not up to the mark. Plus I was doing a course in English. So it was very ironical in that sense. Um, anyway, so this, uh, this sort of English education, that sort of jobs become aspirational, and that definitely has some air of colonialism in it and other very scary, but um, prevalent way of how the vestiges of colonialism is there is the, is the um, a way that the state now, like our independent state still uh, is uh, is authoritarian with some parts of our country like kashmir or uh, or parts which have which the which the government has declared full of naxalites or the way the sort of the northeastern part of india the way there are many um, armed uh, acts Act, there is heavy military presence in many parts of the country. So in a way, uh, that India uh, is very different from the India that gets shown in the in the newspaper to the West, the India that is developing, the India that is young and full of vigor. Uh, within one India exists many, and a lot of it is under, is under um, military occupation against the people's will. So that which is which is sort of what colonialism is at some point right so uh, when our people do it to our own people it's still it's still the same modes of control and modes of like shh, don't talk against us we are the big brothers we are the ones who make the decisions here so these are some of the ways in which the vestiges stay but yeah that would of course, I have to be somebody smarter than me who gives the exact details, but this is how I experience as somebody who doesn't necessarily have a degree in history, but just reads a little bit to learn. 
Well, I think you're pretty smart. So don't say that about yourself. You're brilliant. Oh, no, I, I think I'm smart too. <laughs> and so, you know, I, uh, I say to my clients um, sometimes, you know, uh, please don't put me on a pedestal because, you know, a lot of things I don't know. I know a few things you don't know. So we yeah. walk this path together and, and, not, and try not to say the word expert or whatever, because that creates yeah. the equality and the power differential right there. And that's not mm-hmm. my goal, at least. That makes um, sense, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you got really attracted to play. Why don't you mind telling what playback theater is? Um, not everybody knows about playback theater. Yeah. Um, so yeah. maybe you could share a little bit about that. Oh, I'd be I'd be happy to. Always delighted to share what happened. Playback theater. So playback theater is this uh, original improvised form of theater, which is based on. It's a community form of theater based on real life narratives. It was developed by Joe Salas and Jonathan Fox in 1975 with uh, um, with a group of especially psychodramatists or psychotherapists uh, in New York. Um, So how it uh, a zone of good playback in theory is one that puts together rituals, social interaction and art. So how an evening, if you were to come, Margot, to a playback performance, how it would look is um, you would get into the space and in the space there would already be uh, uh, performers in a semicircle. On one side of the performers would be the music setup with the musicians sitting or standing with uh, the musicians' uh, instruments around. On the other side would be the conductor. Uh, quote unquote, the facilitator for the evening between the audience and the performers. Um, the conductor would invite the audience in. There would be some warming up. And if there's a theme, there would be questions about the theme. And then the t- uh, audience would start becoming the tellers. So it could be something even like, you know, how are you feeling when you walked into this room today? And if they're like happy, then the conductor would pick that happy from the space and give it to the performers and the performers would reflect it back. And as the evening goes, we would get into more personal stories and we would get, we would reflect that back through music, metaphor, dialogue, movement, poetry. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a form of theater, which is, which works very closely with the concept of how, how particular stories can also be universal and social in nature so it's uh, it's an it's a it's an unending love playback is that's just a beautiful description and is there a place where people can actually see some of your work um videos that you've kept of playback uh theater um, uh, where do they find that so that's interesting because uh, unfortunately, because there's a lot of confidentiality involved. Oh, yes, it, yes, yes. Stories, uh, it's not usually um, captured, but there are a couple of, um, not of ours, not of City Lamps, which is the team I belong to, but there are other folks doing it across the world, which there are some videos on live uh, on uh, YouTube. But I personally believe that um, a recorded session is will only give the technicalities of the form, which somehow has to be experienced. The, the, the magic of playback is really in the air, as, as with most intimate art forms. Yeah. Right. So um, if people went to um, City Lamb's Playback Theatre, like if I wanted to visit and join as an audience member, is that possible? Absolutely. We have a show coming up on, oh, this 
it might be done by the time this episode comes out but every month we have a performance uh, which we put up on our social media CITYLAMPS city okay Lights. We'll be sure to mention that, and uh, that's, <laughs> that's something I want to do. I, I I think the pandemic has made me busier than I've ever been in my life. I don't know about you, but it's like crazy. It's true. Um, I resonate. So in playback theater, you sometimes have breakthroughs or cathartic experiences. Is that correct? And t- have there ever been cases or c- scenarios, not cases, but scenarios where people maybe got a little unhinged or... Um, how do you keep safety within the, the theater group? Well, that's really, uh, that's a great question. Um, I, uh, firstly, um, playback, one thing we always ensure to say is that playback is not therapy. Playback can be therapeutic once, merely because of the nature of, or the power of telling one's own story. It can be quite moving and then seeing it played back by other set of people can be quite moving. Um, but it's always, it, the distinction is always made that it's not therapy in its purest sense because not all playbackers are therapists, even though some a lot of them are, not all of them. And playback space is a performance space. It's not a therapy space. So that's the first distinction I want to put out there. Uh, about safety, um, there are different kinds of safety. There's the performer safety, which is performer's emotional safety because uh, it's unpredictable. Like like with improv, as we do Margot, we don't know where we are going to go. We don't know which doors we are going to open. Similarly, we don't know what stories are going to come that evening as we step into our role of playing back. And all stories are welcome in a playback space. So uh, it's part of the actors and the performers and the musicians training that one um, that one be ready to accept and to hold a story in space. However, of course, if it's something emotionally very overwhelming, a performer can always step out, even though that's very exceptional in case. But if it's really close and it's some, it triggers something that has just happened and you cannot, the question to always ask is, if I go on stage feeling the way I do right now, will I be able to honor the story which has been shared? And if the answer is no to that question, then you either support in ways that you don't take center space or you just sit out. Um, second safety is, of course, of the the uh, teller safety, because it is just quite a wonderful, courageous thing to come as strangers in a group of strangers and we say, hey, here, I'm going to gift my uh, story, personal story so that we can see it played back. Uh, so the thing that really holds safety is the third circle amongst the three circles that I mentioned, uh, which is art, social interaction, and ritual. So the ritual uh, is a safe, one of the safety mechanisms of playback theater. Uh, and the fact that the conductor is available to the teller of the story at all times. Um, and the... Uh, the big difference between how playing back happens as opposed to other kinds of acting methodologies, which are which can be a little more about the individual performing, 
you hear, of course, the talent of the playbackers is important, but at the end of the day, the most important part is the teller story. So are we, we are not going to add information which we think is entertaining or we are not going to remove information which we feel is difficult and we can't do. We are going to stay true to the teller story and honor the courage that the teller has shown by sharing the story. So that's one of the ways, um, ways that safety is ensured. Uh, lastly, there are uh, methods like sociometry or even why the, if the conductor might even say, oh, that was, a, that was a deep story that we all heard. We can feel it in the room. So shall we all just close our eyes for a minute and take a deep breath and let that go? What Then ask for the next story. So being able to name what is in the room is a big part also of playback and the transparency and also the skill of the conductor. Uh, and lastly, uh, I think it's the it's what that really the training is for playbackers to be able to not bring one's own biases in a way that it harms the teller story. So if a teller shares a story about being a single parent, say, and if I come from a background where single parenthood is looked down upon, uh, it is imperative for me to not put that lens into the story that has been shared and take this meet the story where where it has been shared from the teller uh i haven't i wouldn't use the word unhinged i have never seen a teller sort of lose it uh, by sharing but what has definitely happened uh, in in my years of playbacking uh, people have been moved after seeing their story played back to tears or they have felt, they have sobbed and they have even laughed because they have seen things that exact, they didn't say it in the story, but after playing back, they are surprised that how did you capture that? It's as though you were there. So there has been all sorts of emotionally connected re responses, be it on the other spectrum of like laughing uncontrollably because they are so overjoyed uh, or on the other side of being so moved at being heard that they weep. So those reactions have come. Well, you know, I was thinking about, you know, people who use improv therapeutically. Um, and I'm a trained therapist for a long time. Yes. So I've been able to meld them. But I think it can be risky with people not knowing. And, and that's a whole different thing. But improv isn't a therapy right now. We consider it therapeutic but it's not recognized yeah. as a therapy. So we need to be careful. Do you sometimes play the conductor? Are you sometimes the conductor? Um, yeah, I have been. Uh, so I'm, I'm one of the active conductors in my, in my team. And I've been so, for around three years now. I'm sorry. Oh, I have been a conductor for around three years now. Okay. And um, maybe that word unhinged was unhinged. I'm not sure, but I, I, I don't want to revisit that too many times. Um, so not at all. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I, it was good because it's always, um, that's the thing. So as a conductor, uh, often uh, we, when we are interviewing the teller, when they're sharing uh, stories, we ask questions. For example, oh, sounds like you felt disturbed. And it's an egoistic part of our, of, especially when I started off as a conductor, I wanted to get it right. You know, I wanted, when I asked the leading question, I wanted the teller to say, yes, you've got it. It is only now later in my practice that I realize, even if they say, no, you've gotten it wrong, that's precious information. 
you know i could ask oh so you it sounds like maybe you are disturbed and they could be like actually no i was really overjoyed but i had a confusion about this other thing and that is as important as them saying yes you got it right you know so um the fact that you said unhinged helped me realize what it was as opposed to what not so i think that was important too <laughs> so um do you think studying traditional improv and when i say traditional improv i'm talking about us or possibly uk i know in europe a lot of people are followers of keith johnstone because he was from there and in the states i'm kind of a spolen person but there's all there's all kinds of whatever schools, schools whatever yeah but um do you think that some training in improv is important for people who are going to do playback theater um i have had an interesting journey because i did, i started doing improv uh 7 years into doing playback theater um i think improv can be really uh, useful uh, because it can because both forms are spontaneous in nature so working on that sort of intuitive spontaneity can help with imp- with play- playing back uh, if you have learned another thing that it can help with is is just creating characters or or taking risks or listening listening to the other person to, in, in ensemble work it can be really useful um but uh, over the years especially in india because uh, just like playback even improv is really new and as far as i have seen not all playbackers have uh, improv experience even though you know they might take classes in improv they might not be improvisers uh completely or professionally or even semi professionally so i wouldn't say it's an absolute necessity but i think there's a lot to be gained both ways i think i personally because now i'm doing both quite regularly neither professionally but both quite regularly there are a lot of there is a lot in playback like it's like this idea of intuitive listening and deep listening and uh taking it slower and metaphors that i can bring to improv and from improv i can take the lightness and the and the ensemble work and the yes ending back into playback so for me it's sort of a two way road which can be transferred uh yeah but there is definitely something that i've been thinking about is um you know acting acting as we learn in scripted theater uh is something um many of us don't have practice in like in my playback team especially so, some of us are some of the te- my teammates are professional actors but more often than not they are not and we have been thinking about what it means to get some bit of training in sort of facial acting and body acting and getting into a character and how that might help in improv and uh, and um, playback too because i've been watching religiously jesuko's um 10 minutes and then some of his guests are uh, professional actors who have had a uh, experience in stage theater and there is something very admirable about that quality of emotional depth that they are able to hold which is very inter- not that it is only with that training that one can hold it but i find it i'm finding myself more and more drawn to it recently Yeah, I I I love that. Yeah, I agree too. Um now one of the things you said in in some of your background 
was that um, you're in an all-female, India's first all-female improv company. And what, yes. what, what's the name of that? The Adamant Eves. So the Adamant the- Eves. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my beginning in improv because I was um, one of the playbacker that I was playing back with then was one of the co-founders of Improv Comedy Bangalore, uh, which was out of which the Adamant Eves was formed. So they had, they were holding uh, auditions and I heard it from my colleague in playback. And he was like, "Mm, I don't know, you can try. Uh, And I was like, okay. And my first thought was, I'm not funny. And he was like, that's not all there is to improv. I was like, really? There's more to improv? Okay, I'll try it out. And then I auditioned and it just, um, and first home of doing improv which is the adamantives and it to date the most safest and most fun that I have while doing improv so yeah I it's it's just a lot of fun uh it's a different space doing improv with uh women who have become basically confidants and friends and just like sisters uh it's a very it's a very it's a very um easy uh, easy job to then go from there to being good performers where everybody's a, sorry from there to being a good performing ensemble because everybody individually is a great performer and then there are these bonds of being good friends with each other so it's just it be- becomes so much easier to be good team together but also to mention it is not it's not like we haven't had to have sit down conversations and say hey you know, conversations where you hurt me, I was hurt, uh, we need to talk about it. Hey, this is not okay. Or hey, I love do- that what you did. Thank you for having my back. You did not have my back. Although, So I think the adamant eaves are stronger for having had those conversations of disagreements. Yes, and absolutely. Um, yeah, and that, that's been the biggest learning. And it's difficult each time. It doesn't get easier. But because you sit down and have that conversation uh, when you come back to it, you're coming with at least lighter baggage. You're coming with having spoken agreements out. And we talk about honesty and improv and being genuine. And if we can't be genuine yeah. and honest with our team members, then there's that negative energy, if you will, yeah. hovering exactly. around us, you know, so like a dark Absolutely. cloud or something. So um, oh, I have to watch that show. I think I have seen that a couple of times, actually. I I think so. Oh. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Who else is in that? I, I, I'm sure I've oh. seen it now. We are right now. We're six active members. It's me, Aarti, Bala, Kavya, Madhu, Shwe. So that's us right now. Shweta Bhatt. Kavya Srinivasan. I realize I just rattled off their pet names. Bala Vishwanathan, Balishri Vishwanathan, Madhu Shukla, uh, yeah, Arti Shastri. So these are the folks who are all who are all uh, right now. The admin teams is taking a break because digital has gotten a lot. Gotten to most of us, the screen fatigue is real. Also in India, some spaces oh, yes. are opening up. Oh yes, that screen fatigue is really real. It's I, so I, I'm constantly misplacing objects and they're right in front of me. Oh no, that is horrible. Yeah. So yeah, so, so we are taking a break from online stuff, but we might do something physical, uh, proximate sometime soon. But yeah, 
these are the folks in Edmonton's. Now, are you are you 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 involved with working with children somehow, right? Bringing these some of these concepts to children. Yeah, so I work. Um, I have a day job in search engine optimization, but I hustle quite a bit. So I also take um, one-on-one theater classes for young students, especially those who are in alternate mediums of learning, like homeschooling or unlearning. Um, modules so I have two students like that and I have another student who's a theater proper I take uh, summer workshops I also take English tuitions for uh, students who are maybe are uh, are learners who are not compatible with the fast-paced learning that the mainstream education imposes so I work with them use some theater games to teach them English or other humanities subjects um, and I take uh, English tuitions for folks anywhere between fifth grade to twelfth um, grade. So yeah, I do a quite a teaching, uh, and and it's nice because all of this sort of mixes. Uh, because most folks who come to me want to use theater, learn theater, but also use it for proficiency in other languages and expressing the student expressing themselves and I am all for that I would I don't want theater just for theater but use it as a tool to express oneself oh yeah and your energy enthusiasm and love just shines through so I know you're a wonderful teacher now are you doing any reaching out to communities where they may not have had access or maybe even heard of improv um um not not as much as we would like to through playback we try to um set up conversations or shows for communities where we haven't gone before uh we have been very lucky during the pandemic to be contacted by uh, a patron who wanted us to perform for an ngo which works with uh children from underprivileged uh not children youth from underprivileged background and that was really um that was really impactful and that was really also challenging to remember that we are going from an absolute place of privilege and we only can reflect their stories we cannot even begin to understand their lived reality but go from a space of wanting to understand and from empathy so um unfortunately because because everything is closed uh, the hope is that once things open up and the vaccination becomes more regular and effective we can reach more community to more community outreach. We are not doing as much as I'd like for us to do that now. I think we need to be more open to reach those communities. But there's some people doing some things online that are very powerful right now as well. Um, how is it going with the pandemic over there right now? What's it? What what percentage are getting vaccinated? Or do you know any of that? Um, so recently that I know, um, anybody above 60 can get vac- vaccinated at this point. Uh, and, uh, we have folks who are above 45 who have a doctor's prescription about being in the you know, vulnerable, um, group can also get vaccinated. The frontline workers have gotten vaccinated at uh, the doctors and, um, even the, uh, the cops, the defense, the military, all of them are getting vaccinated uh, right now. Um, but uh, there is a lot of conversation about trust, trusting the vaccination also. 
uh, in the in the country uh, because there are different vaccines which are available two of them being uh, covishield and covaxin that are most um, available and people want to uh, want to know there and there are some news about how some of the spaces are not being very clear about which of the vaccines are being administrated especially with vulnerable communities so there are there are some questions which are being asked but a lot large population even of civilians are getting vaccinated currently yeah but outside other than that everything seems very normal bangalore my city is known for terrible traffic jams and we are right there all our vehicles are out there everybody's going to <laughs> some people are forgetting to put their masks on so sadly but a large portion of workforce is still working from home like myself and a lot of other folks so it's a mix right now Now, I've been working at home, of course, like for a year now, but I have dreams. Yeah. I just dreamt last night that I went outside, with, I went someplace without a mask. And then oh. I went someplace and they had masks, but they were $28, which was a lot of money, I thought. Yeah. A mask. <laughs> and I, I think they're, they were capitalizing. Yeah. I, I think they were capitalizing on forgetfulness. <laughs> And I was going to the theater as well. So um, I, I love the idea about playback theater. And I really haven't done it much. I've got to visit more. I have a friend in Israel named um, um, Asiel Romanelli, who does a lot of work in playback. And he's a social worker as well. He's just a lovely fellow. Um, Israel has a large base of playback. Does, huh? A lot of play, a lot of wonderful playbackers. So um, why don't you ask me a question? Yes, I love that. Um, so, Margo, um, you know what? I, I picked up on something that you said, which is that, you know, improv is not yet therapy, but while it can be therapeutic. Um, do you in your practice find yourself using modes or tools of improv um, that you find effective? Oh, yes. In fact, I'm studying with a psychologist here who developed a program 30 years ago for a therapist using improv called Rehearsals for Growth. So I do, if my patients are willing, especially the younger ones, like the teenagers, um, I'll introduce the idea that, you know, it might seem a little funny or different, but sometimes it can be helpful and things like memory. Haha. -ha. Um, so uh, I use it frequently frequently um it's really great with couples like just doing a mirror exercise and reflecting each other doing short the alphabet game can be played it's a very emotional relationship filled game so i love playing yeah. as well so and then i do um occasionally run sessions for people with anxiety and yeah. um i use a lot of mindfulness in my practice and i i if possible, I like to start our sessions that way. So wow. we can relax a little bit and breathe. Um, so yes, uh, it's not a therapy yet, but I hope it will be soon. Um, yeah. And uh, there's many of us all over the world working for that. So. Yeah, and so thankful for all of your work. And in performance improv, what is the sort of genre or what is the sort of teacher you like to learn from? And what is the sort of um how what is your favorite uh, way of doing improv 
What is a scene that you remember that you did that you enjoyed? Well, I, I do name drop Jay Suko because he's been my coach for a long time now. And when I work with Jay, we just immediately get into a scene for the most part. We just start a scene. And we did one the other day that was about an ostrich BLT. Instead of bacon, it was ostrich and it was an OLT. And he's somebody I like to play with because he's so easy to play with. I mean... Very, very uh, happy person, uh, so experienced that he knows how to yes and everything. And I also like the work of Spolin. And I, I don't, you know, it's not fair to mention individual teachers, but I will say I've worked with Gary Schwartz as well as Aretha uh, Spolin Sills. And um, she is an excellent teacher. And I love learning Spolin methods because that's kind of where a lot of this came out of. So, um, and I wasn't performing at all for several years, but now I'm in a few little groups here and there on online. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it has been, in a sense, the online improv renaissance. A lot and, of perspectives. And to Doing make it so global. I'm sorry, what did you just say? Yeah, well, what you said, it has become global and it's become a lot more. Like it's occupied more number of hours for me at least than... I could imagine before. And you're taking classes as well. You're still taking classes and workshops with people. Yes, I'm attending a lot and I'm taking. But this January, I sort of had to sit down with myself because last nine months, almost, I, I was doing everything without asking myself, do I have the space for this or mind, mind space or energy for this? I was just saying yes, 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 yes to everything. I was yes ending everything. But uh, this January, I had to sit down and really think about how much do I have time do I have and how to get some sleep. Because a lot of us from India, we were up at like four o'clock in the morning to do improv, slept at around three o'clock to do improv. So that I realized that that has to change because it's not very sustainable. So now I'm doing the word that you use more mindful uh, learning and more mindful teaching. Do you have some genres outside of playback? Because we've discussed that. But outside of playback, do you have any other genres you're particularly drawn to or like to play? I really enjoy uh, doing um, stuff that highlights the the everydayness of reality. As in, um, I know uh, one of the things that I immediately uh, that put my antenna up was uh, when I. I uh, heard that, oh, every scene has to have conflict. And I was like, but why? That's not how we live. And we do have to have conflict sometimes. It I mean, there are conflicts, but we don't have to have conflicts all the time. So uh, stuff that I enjoy a lot is, um, are scenes which are like books, which is like reading a book, which has multiple layers. Like there's a, there's a subtext that's going on between the two improvisers, and, but the outside is a different reality. I really enjoy that. I really enjoy um, narratives which have objects, be objects, but I still have voice. So it's a little surrealistic or, you know, metaphorical. I, I like abstraction quite a bit, thanks to my training in playback. Uh, I and Abhishek Desai, who's a who's a great improviser, he's right now not doing too much improv. Uh, we have a duo called Them, T H E M. We do a lot of this everyday stuff. We just play from characters and play from relationships and play it really slow. 
and that's been a big learning and i thought i thought i'd be too anxious to play slow because i'd always check on the audience to see if they're still there because what if they hate it what if they hate slow stuff and they leave but uh, this this duo was a big learning in how if the if silences are intentional slowness is intentional everybody enjoys it people are not here just for the fast stuff you know it is very reassuring learning Oh yeah! In the beginning, when I was first learning, learning, I still thought it was about being funny and trying to get yeah. a punchline in and all that. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> and now I've been to a place where I really appreciate starting scenes with silence. Yeah. Um, looking at possibly what what they're giving me in terms of a feeling or an emotion, and I love object work. I think it's the funnest thing. Now during the pandemic, a lot of people are using actual things, you know, like that yeah. are on their desk, and that can be fun yeah. as well. Um, so yeah, a true, um, a true genuine lover of the farm. So, uh, and you're also a really good writer. Am I though? Yes, you just wrote a long piece, and uh, I thought I read not too long, but a fairly long piece, very expressive on your posting in Facebook, and I really enjoyed that. Oh, thank um, very you. Very thought provoking, and um, you're just delightful. So I think because I had a brain fart and uh, <laughs> that's you know it. that word, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah, know okay. that word. I, <laughs> I, I think that's like, it's it's interesting, no? Because our memories and knowledge and information collection doesn't necessarily work in linear and coherent ways. Right. Like if we were just sitting in an afternoon and looking at the sky, we wouldn't think linearly, we would think like this. But somehow when it becomes in these contexts, it becomes brain fart. But I think it's very natural. It's part of it. It is part of it. And you've been just a delightful guest. I really, I just love you. I enjoy you so much. I enjoyed this conversation so much. And I did too. Thank you so much for having me. And it is such a pleasure to meet you. It's It's so wonderful to meet you. I've got to to visit your theater more. The time difference is a challenge. But today wasn't so bad for this interview, right? You're not in the middle of the night now. so (laughs) It's it's 10 o'clock here, yeah. Okay, that's that's late for me, but I've you know aged a bit. Oh, are you an early to bed person? No, I stay up at night and watch things on TV or movies or videos or stuff. You know, yeah, I stay oh, way cool. too late. Way <laughs> too late. <laughs> Don't sleep enough, huh, Margot? Because <laughs> I'm addicted to movies, so I just love movies so much. What did you watch recently? I'm sorry, I know you were. But yeah, I won't ask you too much. I just would wonder. Well, you know, I like British detective stories for some reason. Love it. <laughs> I love those. And um, there was a show on years ago called Inspector Lewis or something like that. But they they uh, it was several decades ago, but they redid it in a show called Endeavor, where it shows mm. him as his young self. And it, it all takes place in Oxford, England. So you're all oh. the, the setting is just magnificent in the buildings, and you know it's funny and sad. So I, I kind of like those things a lot. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. How about you? What kind of movies do you like? Do you, do you watch movies? I do, I do, I do, uh, but not as much as I'd like to because I'm trying. I'm actually trying to get back to reading because my pandemic-wise, because I was in front of the screen so much, I just lost my reading mojo absolutely completely and that was very scary because I was that's a big part of who I am so I was like am I never gonna read again but thankfully my sister bought me a 
Murakami, killing Commendator, Commendator, Haruki Murakami. So I'm getting back into it really fast. I really enjoy reading it and I'm feeling like I can start getting back into reading. So I have been trying to reduce watching. So except except the Facebook essentials, like the shows that the 10 minutes that Jay does or ask me anything and the nursery videos and Ari's videos. So other than my absolute, um, I wouldn't miss this. I am trying to reduce my screen time so I can get back to the written word, as they say. Well, that's really smart. And I probably need to be doing that. But by the end of the day, and I do, I used to love to read. I need to get back into reading. Um, and uh, because reading is so important for us, for our brains, and also as improvisers, I think being well yeah. read is really important so that I might throw out a reference and maybe two people or one person might get it, but one person is surely going to get it. You know, like yeah. uh, one of my favorite is from um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Dark. Oh, the horror, the horror, which was in the film mm. Apocalypse Now. Um, anyway, yeah, so I like to make those connections, too. So, well, um, have you been to the States much before all this terrible stuff? Oh, I haven't. I haven't traveled. I'm not very well traveled. I have traveled to Nepal, which is a neighboring state. Yes. I've been, most of my life has been within India. and But I'm looking to perhaps do a PhD or a MA, another master soon, and that could be outside the country. So, Fingers crossed. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to see you again soon. I know that. And yes. I wish you the best of fortune and goodwill with your projects. You're just lovely. And I, I'm sure your students and your co-colleagues really enjoy you as well. Thank you. Thank so you much. so much, Margo. You have been such a curious, wonderful host. And thank you for asking me things which made me realize stuff about myself. And that's such a precious thing. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and look forward to you joining us next time on Improv Interviews with Margot Escott.